You are listening to the JCN Clinic Podcast. The JCN Clinic Podcast is a place where nutritionalists Jessica Cox and Carissa Mason get real about nutrition and living a healthy life. They share with you their passion and their clinical knowledge for a fun, no BS approach to looking after yourself. Please enjoy today's episode and don't forget to subscribe and iTunes. Hello once again and welcome to the JCN Clinic podcast show. I'm Jessica. I'm Carissa. And we're joined by, if you listen really carefully, the snoring dog. With our my snoring dog. With our um, new microphone set up, it seems to be picking up some pretty awesome sounds in the background. Yeah. And she makes the weirdest noises for it. She grunts a lot as well. That's why I call her like little pig. She sits there and snores, but sometimes you like touch her and she's like, <laughs> She makes all these groaning sounds. She's a weird little animal. Unique. Aren't you? Unique, unique, unique. You're unique. So today we're going to be talking about pathology testing, just standard pathology testing. We've talked a lot in different episodes about functional testing, um, (laughs) stool testing, Dutch testing, heaps of different tests, and we'll continue to do so and it will come up today. But we wanted to talk about the type of pathology testing that you get done through your GP because we use this testing a lot in the clinic probably with almost every client every client and it's something um that Carissa did uh did you do a live was it a live I did an IG- okay. I did an IGTV live about just talking about the um the different parameters like like mainstream pathology parameters versus what we look for as nutritionists uh, okay. um, which got a lot of good feedback yep. too because I think there's a lot of people want to know what I think I think the cool thing is is that people are really starting to realize they can take their health into their own yes. hands and sometimes what may be told is fine on bloods from a uh, generalized pathology parameter may also be can sometimes be from a preventative health space which is what we work in a bit of a warning or a bit of mm. a red flag which is obviously you know what we look at so that's it and a big part of what we want to cover today and i think the other yeah. thing about this podcast is as always for us is education because when people get their blood work back we have our clients say this all the time it's just like oh well I'll just send it to you or we'll go through it together because this is just gibberish to me it doesn't mean anything and look we're not expecting you to be able to read your blood tests the way we read them but I also think that there's some power in understanding some of the basics or maybe being a being a little bit more questioning about, oh, that seems like that's a little bit low or that's a little bit high. Should I be questioning that? Yeah. So it's um, it's going to be an interesting discussion as always. Yes, yes, as always. <laughs> it's, it's Friday, guys, so you're either going to get our fried brains or our firing brains. <laughs> firing brains. Maybe a bit of both. <laughs> so when it comes to standard pathology, um, we we gen- we tend to ask for certain things from your GP, and I think first and foremost, what I wanted to point out here is that as nutritionists, we actually do have the ability to write, um, a, say, a direct request form to a lab. However, we don't have coverage by Medicare here in Australia, so it means that if we do that, you have to pay for your tests, and it's very expensive. Um, Whereas if you go to your GP and we write you a referral letter, 
generally you're only paying to see your GP and depending on what your Medicare gap is. And then ideally, and this is something we'll be talking a lot about, Mm -hmm. ideally the tests will also be covered by Medicare. However, that is where there can be just some discrepancies which we'll cover depending on your GP's um, openness to do certain tests um, that we think need to be covered. Or what were you going to say? I was like, some guy stopped my (laughs) (laughs) Warning, there may be some Carissa rants that encourage Jessica rants. I was going to say, yeah, I think openness is a good way to put it. I'm just feeding straight off the back of a conversation yesterday with a client of mine who had a terrible experience with her GP who just didn't want to do any bloods literally because the letter had come from a nutritionist. And I think... I think that's the other space as well that I think I have a chat. I have chats with a lot of my clients, and I do think you know these instances aren't are few and far between. The not so nice ones when people go in just wanting some generalized blood tests done to you know either look after you know check on their general health or you know the status of their hormones through bloods or mm-hmm. their iron or anything like that. But and usually I'm going to say seventy percent of the time I think it's usually met with you know, an understanding from the GP, um, if not an understanding, at least a, you know, like, yep, okay, sure. I don't understand why your nutritionist mm. wants this tested, but if it, I'm happy to do it because you haven't had bloods done in X amount of time, or yes, I can see on bloods 18 months ago that this was starting mm-hmm. to look a bit low. So, yep, no worries. I'll put that through Medicare for you. And I've even had GPs that have been nice enough to say to some of my clients, like, I don't actually understand what she's doing here, Mm -hmm. which is fine, but that's good on them. Like, I don't actually understand why she's getting this marker tested. And it it comes back, say it's high. Like, let's use homocysteine for an example. And it comes back and it's really high. Mm -hmm. Obviously, GPs look at homocysteine usually just from a cardiovascular Mm -hmm. point of view. So obviously, if you're dealing with a fit 25-year-old female with hormone issues, they're not really going to, you know, join the dots there. And that's fine. But they are so happy to say, look, I don't understand what she's doing here, but she's obviously requested this marker for a reason and it has come back high. Mm. So I'll let your GP decide, I mean, your nutritionist decide what she needs to do with mm-hmm. that. So that's like perfect scenario, yeah, right? Like, uh, <laughs> you're like describing dream world. <laughs> yeah, which I, which I absolutely love. And I do think we're starting to merge a little yes, bit that agreed. way. But then what I kind of wanted to say before <laughs> I stopped myself is sometimes the G, like sometimes going to a GP um, to just request some standard pathology, which should be able to be covered by Medicare if you go and pay to ask, if you pay to see a GP and you ask for this and it's not with not within reasonable, well, it is within reasonable parameters mm. what we request. We're not requesting anything crazy. Um, a lot of the time, and if if we do, we state a reason on the blood test referral as to why. Well, I know I definitely do. Just I use some key points exactly. and trigger words so that the GPs go, oh, okay, yep, that makes sense um, in my wording of my letters. Um, but then you sometimes have the clients that go in and meet with the GP and the GP is just nasty or on a bit of a rant and just doesn't like a letter from a nutritionist really questions our credibility but then also um puts the patient or our client in a situation where they have to explain the blood test referral letter to the gp which of course you guys aren't qualified to do Mm -hmm. like you don't know what we're doing and why like you've got a general understanding which i know some of my clients try to articulate through to the general to the to the gp or the physician but it's just met with this forceful tone this this adamant Mm. of i'm not doing this and then people actually walk out of the consultation with either none of the blood's done 
some of them done, mm-hmm. but hardly any, or but usually feeling really kind of yeah, shaken by that's the experience, the thing, which it? I think. Unfortunately, we get that feedback from clients a lot where they've had a really unpleasant experience and been yeah. either really angry or really upset or made to yeah. feel um, that they should Inadequate. be. Inadequate. Yeah, In- and questioning then back onto mm. us as far as like, well, why, why are they asking for this? And particularly if um, they're... Um, specialist or GP has been questioning why you're going down that track, like you're wasting your money, those yeah. sorts of things. But I get the other thing yeah. I would say that you you mentioned there was about referral letters and for other practitioners or even maybe students that are looking at getting into clinic, it's a really important space to um, explore and make sure you're writing good referral letters. They don't have to be super like comprehensive documents but there's a language that you need to be using you need to as Chris has said explain why you want certain tests done particularly if they're outside normal parameters but I would even we we always will say why even for everyday staff that we want done like if they we're not just like hey GP give us some blood tests exactly like we want JC and crew (laughs) we're gonna say who the client is why they've come to see us, what our main concerns are and why we feel these blood tests are warranted. Um, yep. those, those key points are really important. So ideally when that doctor reads that referral letter, they understand why we're asking for these tests. And generally that can be a really important factor in getting across the line. Um, yep. They may be some that they still won't do. And I think that comes down to, which we'll get into too, just the way Medicare is structured. But some GPs are a little bit more lenient. Um, and that's yep. where for us sometimes the way we write a referral letter and maybe stressing certain areas a little bit more strongly as far as yep. like, yeah. you know, <laughs> let's say you're super, super, super fatigued and <laughs> mention this or mention that. Panic. It's like when you read your referral letter and it makes it sound like you're dying, don't stress. I'm just trying. <laughs> That's to- just us trying to speak GP language to kind of push a few, push a few boundaries so we can just get this extra test done so you don't have to pay for it. I actually quite often will read my letters back to my clients if I know I'm like not over-exaggerating but really dropping some strong points in. And especially obviously working in the hormone space a lot when I'm dealing with weight, because weight's obviously a sensitive, a sensitive area for most females. But if I know I want to get a full thyroid panel done and standard testing is really just TSH, but I know that there's a family history of Hashis or Graves, um, this person has... Hashies, it's my new word. Take it, take it, guys, take it. Um, <laughs> um, I've basically shortened every word, every big word. I can't be bothered to so use. So Aussie. <laughs> Hashies, um, you know. And but I will like in the letter. So for anyone that you know feels like they need to go and chat to their GP, like there's certain criteria that you'll mention that the GP will then go, okay, I can understand why yes. you want these extra pathology things done. So you know, for 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 Hashies, for example, or a suspected subclinical like hypo thyroid um, we're looking at things like inability to lose weight despite maintaining a healthy diet and exercise routine yes. and a family family history of autoimmune family history is so big if you as a pracky can put family history yeah. into a referral don't yeah. you think yeah i know even for homocysteine like if i'm obviously really knowing that this person doesn't have a great relationship with their gp or they've had issues in the past like even for homocysteine if there's a if there's a strong family history of any sort of cardiovascular thing and my client does potentially suffer with any sort of weight concern mm-hmm. or 
inflammatory style thing or they've had high cholesterol like i will even use that sometimes in my wording to get yeah. homocysteine tested yeah. because i know that that's what the gps will resonate with yeah. and that's not us being tricky or <laughs> you know anything it is a little bit but it's just us understanding that there is a language that you know yeah. physicians physicians use and they do have rules sometimes it's not just them being assholes going no we're not going to test that yeah. sometimes it is <laughs> but sometimes but sometimes it's actually them going look i've actually got a set amount of things i'm allowed to do here and unless you give me the criteria i can't do that test yeah so yep, yeah exactly so with the blood testing we're going to talk through the main types of blood tests that we would generally look at um also with before we get into that with referrals and standard pathology there is just general stool testing so pcr testing and i think we've covered that a little bit to date um, in other podcasts as far as it being a good can be a good starting point for some some, yeah. some basic parasites and and um, bacteria, but it's it really is like a drop in the ocean as far as getting information about the gut. Um, so we generally don't tend to refer. Um, I think you know once in a blue moon. I'm not going to say we don't, but generally that style of stool testing will be looking more at functional pathology because. It's just so much more thorough and comprehensive yeah. as far as the data that we need for um, chronic gut issues. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, I, I actually do use it quite a bit. Okay. Um, I just I... put words in Chris's mouth. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I, I wouldn't say I definitely don't use it in place of our stool tests, <laughs> but I will, I'll use it as a baseline. Um, and I'll use it as a retest mechanism. Like say someone doesn't want to do a full retest of a functional stool, yep. but they're concerned that like, let's say they came up with diantamoeba yep, or blasto. Yep. Yeah, you know, like in their main stool test, yep. um, you know, that we've done like a functional, like a GI 360 or a GI FX then. And they, I like, and they want to see if their parasite is still there, but the rest of their gut function is good. I'll send them off for a PCR test. If someone comes into me also with like acute gut stuff, mm -hmm. um, and they're not in the financial position to spend five five hundred bucks or four hundred bucks mm -hmm. on a um, on a stool test. Then I will just say, look, pop off to your GP and let's just rule out anything mm -hmm. nasty. Mm -hmm. um, and I also use it for fecal calprotectin as well. That um, I know that's not PCR yeah. testing, but stool testing yeah. through GPs. If I just want that generalized inflammatory bowel marker, but again, that person's not in the financial position straight up to pay for a big for stool sure, test. For sure. Also, a lot of our clients that come to us to tend to have had this done. Not all of yeah, them, true. but a lot of them, if they have had gut issues for a while, will say, I've had this tested. And that's often where we're like going, well, that's great, but, you know, we and need to dish much kind of... when you could do this much. <laughs> Carissa just did some uh, hand gestures. That we, yeah, we need to record our podcast. Like, we need to do what the ATP guys do. So you guys can actually watch us speak. <laughs> How fun would that be for you all? Not. Uh, ultrasounds. So how often are you referring someone on for ultrasounds? I feel like you probably do this a little bit more than me because you work with hormones a bit more strongly yeah. than I do. I'm going to say um, depending, yeah, again, on the clients, but probably I do a quite a lot of pelvic ultrasounds. Yeah. So with, um, if especially in the hormone space, like I've, I've got, like I know that there's the actual diagnostic criteria for PCOS, yeah. but I, I would say like I, any client that I'm suspecting with, if we're dealing with um, amenorrhea, hypothalamic amenorrhea, 
potential, you know, androgen issues, PCOS, that sort of stuff, even estrogen issues and fibroids, I'm quite, I'm usually sending them for pelvic, pelvic ultrasounds just so we can get an idea yeah. along with some bloods as well. So yeah, for sure, for sure. The other thing that sometimes like it's, uh, it can be a little bit harder because it's just ultrasounds are good. They're great. Don't like they they, have, they've got, they're great, they've got, but they're not always accurate. No, exactly. But I was going to say from a bowel point of view, sometimes um, depending <coughs> a, a GP from a gastroenterologist point of view might be looking at some form of fecal impaction from like a, yeah, actually, a, a yeah, gut. Yeah, point. A gut issue, um, but most of the time, I think as far as referrals go, it's probably going to be more um, the aforementioned you were mentioning. Yeah. How often do you send people like this? Is probably something we don't do as much, but definitely like upper like upper epigastric pain. Like once and once in a while, I'd be like, you need to go to your GP and get a liver gallbladder ultrasound done and just sort of check that yeah, space. Yeah, okay, but yeah, but rare. Like usually, yeah. again, I would flag that it tends to go the other way for us. But I have yeah. definitely with clients at different points said you need to go and get this tested um, just, just to rule, rule, out. rule out. But most yeah. of the time. Um, I could I could kind of say it's, it's good that they've got it done, but I sometimes think it's unfortunate that we're that end line still. So someone's yeah. done those procedures already, inclusive of colonoscopies, endoscopies, and then they're coming to see us. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it, I guess that's other procedures too, isn't it? Like they're not still everyday standard pathology, but, no. you know, <laughs> yeah. they're those sort of procedures that we, uh, if we see red flags, particularly with functional stool testing and things like those inflammatory markers come up, we're going to be like, well, if you've never had had these you know if you've never had a colonoscopy before and we can see occult blood and fecal calprotectins raised then we need to make sure we're doing a due diligence here yeah 100 percent. but let's talk back to bloods so yep. so many things we tend to i guess like anyone else have a bit of a standard hit list and then we would kind of add from there but we're going to we're going to talk about our sort of general blood parameters so we'll start first with iron which is uh, i feel like we i did think we did a podcast on iron itself at one point um but when we did we (laughs) chris is just nodding going maybe i don't know i'm probably making it up so when you want to get your iron tested you need to ask for iron studies um we have serum iron which is i always said my clients it's like how much you've got in your wallet at the time like if i said to you how much have you got just sitting in that in your wallet or in your pockets um, and I made an assumption on that as how rich you were instead of asking you how much have you got in the bank. In the bank. So That's a really good analogy. I like I've it. never used thank it. Thank you. Thank you. So good. <laughs> <laughs> Not what you got in your wallet. What have you got in your bank? Boom. So serum <laughs> iron is telling you at that time what's running around in your bloodstream but ferritin is your storage. It's your bank. What have you got in your reserves and then you've got a few in between um markers trans set transfer saturation <laughs> like a mental block for a minute i again say to my clients these are like your transporters or your buses that carry the iron around so that tells us a lot about what might be happening too so you want to get an idea of all of that if you make a decision on your iron status just off serum iron it's again it's like asking me telling me that I'm poor because I've got two bucks in my pocket when I could have two million in the bank. I wish. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure our podcast studio would look a lot flasher if there was two million in the bank. (laughs) I wouldn't be sitting on the floor of my bedroom and you wouldn't be sitting in a box that Damien made. (laughs) A felt spaceship. A felt spaceship. (laughs) 
<laughs> I need to take some video. <laughs> now, with iron, probably like all of those four markers are really important, but for us, we are generally putting a lot of weight more on your ferritin and because it's more often the area that tends to um, be low and not given enough recognition. Serum, often serum iron in is, well, it's not often fine. Majority of the time it is fine whilst ferritin can be low and yeah. it's not often picked up. And also what we're talking about and we'll be talking about a lot of these markers is that you have reference ranges. So for most GPs, if you're in a reference range, they're going to not consider that a problem it will only be flagged come up red their system will tell them it's an issue if it's out of range otherwise they may they just don't get any um sort of notification as such and depending on how thorough they are like it's not even something they're going to look over so the range from say 30 to 200 you might be sitting at um 40 31 or 30 (laughs) 31 (laughs) and it's like fine (laughs) Now, from our. You're good. <laughs> as you can probably imagine, if that's your storage levels and you're just scraping in, that's not ideal. And this is where it's yep. about preventative care, making sure you're at optimal health, particularly if you're saying to us, I'm fatigued, I'm run down, I'm bruising easy, I'm getting sick all the time. And we're like, well, your ferritin's in the toilet, just. Yeah. <laughs> just, just about. <laughs> it's just hanging on the side of the bowl, like one of those cleaners that you just kind of on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> those little you know what are they, those squishy cleaners I know my sister yeah. was talking about them last night it's why it popped into my head and with that oh. reference range like I would generally like to see particularly women sitting over 100 like I yeah, think I say 80 to 100 is optimal yeah 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 it's just and I would also say majority of the time with a lot of clients we see who are having health issues it's a common one that it is on that lower mm. end wouldn't you say yeah Hundred percent, yep. And I think too, like I, I like, I know, I know you're probably exactly the same. If it's if it's forty or below, I'm usually starting to supplement yep. or have serious conversations with that person as to what we need to do to either nutritionally do this from a food and mm-hmm. you know a food point of view, or if you know if we don't think we can do it from a food point of view in the time that is needed. Um, whether that be because that person's, you know, planning on having a baby or they've got chronic gut issues or something like that, then we're probably looking at some form of supplementation to get it up to that 80 to 100 mark. Iron's not just for energy. Like everyone will, I suppose, indirectly when we're talking about the thyroid, it is. But like iron plays a big role in so many different biological functions. And I think everyone's just like, oh, if my iron's low, I just drop out in energy. That's fine. I'll just boost it back up. It's By the time it gets low to the point where you need to be concerned about it, um, it's already done a lot of systemic, Mm. has had a lot of systemic changes. So it's a bit of a domino effect with iron. And that's why I think we are so passionate about Mm. making sure it stays up for women. Um, And then the other flip side of iron is um i can hear my voice can you hear my voice relaying no No, i'm all good no okay okay good um and the flip side of iron is iron when it's too high Mm. which is obviously the case with my iron because we've got i think yeah which i have this conversation with some people because obviously 
we want iron to probably sit somewhere between maybe 80 to 100 to 150 but we don't want it sitting up in the three to four to five hundreds mm-hmm. which for some women you know who are genetically susceptible susceptible or if there's strong inflammatory conditions going on what your body can do as a defense mechanism is actually store iron mm-hmm. um so we have hemochromatosis which is the complete opposite end of that where you'll have ferritin up in the thousands sometimes um but then you have these little intermediate space that a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to where we have what we call early iron overload so it's kind of like you're not going to develop into hemochromatosis because you don't necessarily carry the gene but you do have genes that either favor iron storage or you've got inflammatory processes happening in your body Mm. from whatever reason so early iron overload is not great either because what the body does when it has excess iron to deal with is it actually goes okay well i can't store you in the liver well i'll just start now storing you in other organs exactly (laughs) which is not conducive to good health either so yeah so that's another thing i always look at like it's pretty rare that it comes back high but it it definitely can and it's also as chris has just mentioned there high iron is also an inflammatory marker like it may not be hemochromatosis but it's it can be high ferritin sorry is high ferritin can be an inflammatory marker and it's why when you test ferritin, you should always run a, a CRP panel at the same time. So if we, CRP is an acute inflammatory marker. So if we mm. have a raised CRP and the ferritin looks really weird, then we know that that is a, generally yeah, an correct. inflammatory response and hopefully transient. And then it will settle down once you deal with the inflammation. So that's yeah, just another thing. Because that's what like. I... Yeah, well, that's what I always have to do with mine. Like I always run my iron, but I always run my CRP and ESR at the same time. And my iron's always, you know, low, low high. Like my iron usually sits around the 200. Yeah. Um, Just naturally. I think it might be a little, maybe 240. Like I can't remember my last bloods that I did, but my inflammatory markers are always fine. But I always Mm -hmm. test that against, yeah, CRP, ESR, which are your basic inflammatory markers and homocysteine as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I run all of my sort of inflammatory markers and look at my iron. Like my dad's iron naturally sits at eight. 900 wow like which is yeah but you know he loves a beer so (laughs) (laughs) so but i just know with our family history like it's Mm. really interesting like all of his sisters i think i'm not sure i know one of them gets high iron so definitely on my dad's side of the family iron oh iron excess storage is definitely something that we Mm -hmm. pay attention to Mm So, yeah, I think what we obviously are trying to highlight there is that it's really important to look at that reference range, particularly when it comes to ferritin and um, working with someone who can look at that, evaluate that effectively and, and make the decisions accordingly because both end of the spectrums can mean different things and then to go back to, yeah, the, the low end, as Chris was saying too, there's supplementation and there's diet, of course, but there's also mm. like everything we do at JCN, what's the underlying cause further? If you already eat well, um, maybe you've been taking iron and you just can't budge that, then we're going to be looking at what other underlying factors yeah. there are. I yeah. think we did a podcast on that. I'm not quite think, sure. If we have, I'll put ever, it in the show notes. <laughs> do you ever like go back through our podcast episodes? Because there's so many now. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll be trying to find like, okay, I just need you to listen to our SIBO podcast like for a client. And you have to go right back. I now yeah. know SIBO is episode number six because <laughs> I've had to find that quite a few times lately. But you go back through all the podcasts and you're like, shit, we've done I a know. lot. <laughs> we we'll probably need to do some updated ones, the ones we started yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because so much is yeah things change we learn more um i feel like i could keep talking about iron but we'll move on um do you want to talk about b12 
person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's um, B12, again, another little, I feel like we're going to say all of these are misunderstood. but they're not they're just again it's just parameter like realistic parameters versus optimal parameters Mm -hmm. is probably no yeah gp anyway let's just say optimal parameters so b12 there's two there's two ways they'll test b12 b12 they will look at um active b12 or serum b12 Mm -hmm. um they're both obviously in blood so they're both serum but active b12 is probably a better marker to look at i always write active b12 for my bloods depends on the GP what they decide to run. So active B12, like realistically, we want it um, kind of up. Oh God, I, I liked, generally if it's over 50 for active B12, yeah. it usually looks pretty good. But so, like, I love it when I see it up over like a hundred or yeah. something like that. So usually that's a good one to kind of tell because if it's definitely on that lower, and I think the reference range is below 35 is the cutoff. Yeah. So, but obviously it's, it's not when you look at the actual, like normal, normal B12 and inverted commas in the bloods, like the cutoff for that, where you're actually considered deficient, I think is depending again on the pathology lab, but usually below 150 um, to 200. So if you're sitting just with your normal B12, they haven't tested active B12 and you're sitting around the 200 space, I'm going to say you're B12 deficient Mm -hmm. because if you compare that to when we do urinary markers like methylmalonic acid Mm. or something like that, you'll quite often see that it's really cool to, to look at, you know, someone who's got a high lot of high lot of methylmalonic acid coming through which is obviously b12 you know urinary metabolite if you've got high levels of that coming through and a lower end of range serum b12 mm-hmm. you're pretty much b12 deficient because your body's using a lot of it for whatever reason mm-hmm. so I think Australian parameters are a little bit behind the eight ball. I really love to, I would love to see an Australian cutoff for just normal B12 at, you know, probably 600, yeah. um, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Do you agree? Like six to 800 would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, yeah, it, it worries me that it's acceptable at such a low range. Uh, yeah. I just feel and like when it's we know constantly. How involved. And the other thing I'll... I'll often look at um, in relation to this is what's happening with the breakdown of white blood cells and red blood cells. And you can often start to see deficiency signs there as far as um, B12 goes. And that's where, as you were just saying, like if, if you're seeing that lower end presentation in your B12 numbers, but then you can see in your red blood cells that there's some really poor ranges um, yeah. there's something called your mean cell hemoglobin and you can see yeah. that it's it's actually getting into I know everyone's gonna be like oh, falling asleep but like yeah, it's, it's basically <laughs> telling us that you're and I think about this is when I used to look at blood through a microscope it's it's your blood cells your red blood cells get really big um, yeah and macros- macrocytic exactly and that is something we can see in your breakdown of your red blood cells so if we can see yeah. that happening and then you've got this kind of suboptimal or lower end range for us with your B12, then that to me is definitely problematic and something that I want to be supplementing with. But usually nothing again that a GP is going to, and I I don't want to stereotype too much, but I guess I am, (laughs) but most GPs aren't going to look at that. Um, But for us, it's like that needs needs assistance. 
Yeah. And the reason why, like we'll put it into terms for the for everyone listening, like so like don't have a snooze fest through what Jess and I are saying because we obviously look at it from a biochemical perspective of how important B12 is because obviously Jess, talk, Jess is talking about it from red blood cell formation. I look at it, you know, not only from red blood cells, I know Jess does the same. We're talking about, we're talking about the methylation and methionine cycle. Um, it's really important in that. So let's, so for everyone listening, the way that you guys could look at this in terms of why, okay, so why are these cycles so important? Mm. Why are red blood cells so important red block blood cells carry oxygen okay if you're not making proper red blood cells you don't have blood and nutrient delivery to every cell tissue in your body so that's kind of important <laughs> how that how that little. translates through to little <laughs> how that translates through to how you're actually going to feel is do you get cold extremities do you um you know do you get out of breath easily do you have low iron so you've got low energy you know low red blood cell formation mm. so e- energy is probably a big one when we're looking at iron and b12 um do you have like mental health emotional health neurotransmitter stuff going on Um, are you struggling to detox do you have inflammatory conditions Mm. going on so b12 plays this as this little tiny nutrient little tiny vitamin that kind of doesn't get the recognition like like i'm sure we'll say all vitamins and nutrients do but it doesn't really get you know everyone just goes cool you've got low b12 Mm. r you know, or it's just suboptimal, that's okay. But the, the again, the domino effects of mm. being suboptimal and not optimal has a big, you know, systemic, you know, um, like effect basically. Yeah, yeah. So, And I know like if, if Em was here, she'd be super passionate about things like your B12 and even your iron as far as those neurotransmitter pathways and how they're used yeah. in conversion of different pathways. So you, if you have those yep. deficiencies, you can't make those transfers along those pathways and produce yep. as um, as much of these really important neurotransmitters for your everyday mental health. So your mood, your, yeah, your, your, your general feel good and um sort of wellness every day is highly affected yep. by these deficiencies, not only from a poor oxygenation point of view, but from a, mm. a, a mental health capacity. So yeah, it's so important. Yeah. It's so funny how we all look at it from different reasons. Yeah. For different reasons too. Like I go straight down the detoxification hormones, yep. like, you know, methylation, methionine cycle, genetic pathways, yep. stuff like that. And go straight for the mental health yep. neurotransmitter pathways. You're on the red blood cells. Yep. You know yep. what I mean? Like, it's just like, but you can see, like, it's not just this nutrient that's yeah. oh I've got low energy I need B12 or I need iron like there's so many reasons why and and not to scare the shit out of people mm. again but if you've got low B12 and you've got a genetic susceptibility to any sort of clotting disorder mm. in your family if you're on the pill and you have low B12 if you smoke and you have low B12 you are at a higher risk of clotting disorders and or stroke and I have seen that happen for people with where their bloods have come back in suboptimal B12 ranges they haven't completely dropped out but it's enough for their red blood cells to become sticky mm-hmm. and it's enough for them to to get you know um you know minor minor clots and i've even had a, like one to two clients with um that have had minor strokes so it's not trying to scare <laughs> people laughing, but it's just like you're not trying no, to scare people but you're going but, to have a stroke no, no but it's I'm just like <laughs> I know I'm not trying to scare people, but here's the worst scenario. No, but you know what I mean. It's just like there's all these things and people are like B12, B12, it's fine. Don't yeah. worry about it or it doesn't matter. And you're just like, well, it kind of does if you smoke, if you're on the pill, if you've got, you know, like, sorry. Yeah, that sounded like so bad, didn't it? Like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but now yeah. we also will, again, look at underlying causes here. So diet's always going to be another one and 
We won't go into heaps of specifics. It's not about that today. But I'll also just flag digestion. We've talked about this again on the podcast. We have talked about this. So many show notes, but you we have to be looking. I'm at so what's, glad the show notes I, are your job. I often say it and then forget. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people. <laughs> but digestion is a, another major as far as your upper upper digestion. I'm not going to go into details with that. Well, I will. I promise I'll put it in the show notes. But digestion, diet, absolutely. Um, and then Chris has obviously talked about some genetic predispositions. But let's move on to white blood cells while we're talking about the old ah. blood cell sitch. So for me, I always get a little bit, I don't know. You always have your little areas. This, this one I'm always like looking at like a hound dog. Yeah, just <laughs> even for like the slightest drop, hey, like even if it's in reference range, but you're like, neutrophils are low. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, did you see a neutrophils? What's going on? What's happening there? Look, I find with the more and more. She's healthy. Did you see a neutrophils? (laughs) With the chronic issues that we see at the clinic and with clients that I continuing to see, I see a lot of what I will call immune fatigue. So white blood cells will be just scraping the barrel. So there's there's always a total of white blood cells, but then we'll see a breakdown of your neutrophils, your eosinophils, basophils, et cetera. But generally what we'll see is the total of white blood cells will be just scraping the barrel or often low um, and Mm. then neutrophils will be low. Everything will be on that lower end. Now it will sometimes be flagged and your doctor, there'll be a little note about it being something called neutropenia, which means your white blood cells are on that lower end. And then some GPs will ask you to come back in maybe anywhere from three to six weeks to retest because sometimes that just happens as a viral response like it makes sense and it just needs to be tested again absolutely fine however what we see is that it's a chronic state and generally I say to my clients this is I use again immune fatigue as a way of explaining it because these white blood cells have been depleted over time they've been working so hard and so hard and fighting inflammation and fighting infection wherever that's coming from um often you know a lot of gut stuff but can be other factors and they just become so depleted and often with these people they'll feel that as well like there'll be someone that'll say they're getting sick all the time or when they do get sick they can't seem to get over it um there'll there'll be a lot of um maybe past viral assaults as well all sorts of stuff going on but I feel like it's a space that isn't, again, given enough attention when it's low. And for me, I get really excited when I work with my clients and we retest that in, say, six months or even sometimes 12 months. And you see that plumpness of those cells growing again and they're hitting into those mid ranges. And, you you know, you feel that it's like when you, your iron, your ferritin goes up and your B12 goes up, but your white blood cells start to get some more robust levels and no longer are you falling sick as easily or getting as chronically ill but usually it also means that you're just not as flamed you don't have as much chronic inflammation in your body that's just draining these poor little babies so yeah white blood cells i feel like are really important to look at within your reference ranges and i'm not yeah you know i don't i think with all of this stuff we're not being super finicky but you you can look at these ranges and you can see when something no we are (laughs) (laughs) We're freaking everyone out right now. 
it's like it's like if you look at I don't know like mean cell hemoglobin and your reference range is something really small off the top of my head I'm not looking at any bloods in front of me but say it's like I think no, roughly like 29 to 35 it's something like that so you've only got a few little buffers so if it's like one one point below the mid range it's like oh that's low like we're not doing that but if you're no. if your range is on the low end then it needs attention yeah and on the low end consistently too yeah. like this is what I'd say to my clients, especially too, like if they first come in to see me and yeah, let's just say they've like, you know, obviously like you, we call it immune fatigue, but let's just say like they come in, the, the thing that they're going to say to us is like, I just feel run down all the time. I definitely know my gut isn't a hundred percent. How often do you get sick? Oh, I pick up everything. How long does it take you to recover? Do you just bounce back in three days? Or are you someone who's down for a week? No, I'm down for a week to 10 days, really struggle to shake things. Cool. Let's have a look at your white blood cell history. Yeah. You know, and I always, you know, I, I call it like a white blood cell history because I'm like, let's not just look at what's representational now. Let's look at how long this has been mm. going on. Because quite often when you get some blood tests from someone, if they've had a regular GP or use the same pathology lab, is you can kind of have a look over the space mm, of the last true. couple of years, what the pattern of their white blood cells has been doing. And like mm. exactly like what you were just saying, they've been low level for quite an yeah. amount of time. Yeah. So you're just like your body has been fighting and mm-hmm. fighting and fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> poor little white blood cells, they need some plumping. Plumping <laughs> up. Plumping up. Now thyroid. Oh, boom. Let me take the fucking floor for this one. (laughs) I love my thyroid markers. So thyroid is probably one of the hardest ones to get tested, to be honest, to get a full panel done. But let's explain how important the resistance is just the resistance is real. (laughs) It's like the handmaid's tale of blood testing. Yeah. So it's, oh my God, it so is. So standard pathology and Medicare stuff (laughs) dictates that realistically your GP or your physician only has to test TSH if there's no other reason to test any of the other markers. And as you've heard us probably say in a podcast and definitely say on lives and anyone, anyone who knows, you know, listens to what we talk about. And you guys all know that from by now TSH, which is your thyroid stimulating hormone is just not an accurate representation of what is going on with your thyroid. For starters, TSH is is not even at the actual thyroid hormones that we want to look Mm. at. So thyroid stimulating hormone, the name sort of says it for itself. TSH gets some information from the brain and it says it stimulates the thyroid to produce T3 and T4. So T4 is your inactive thyroid hormone, which we also want to check. And then T3 is the active thyroid hormone. So T4 has to convert through to T3. T3 is your active thyroid hormone and that's what you actually want to really kind of get a good gauge at because if you've got good t3 levels in your blood you have energy you have good metabolism you um you're you should main be able to maintain a healthy weight with good diet and exercise mm-hmm. um and they're definitely the first markers so tsh t3 t4 are the first things we want to check there's this little intermediate marker which you know under times of stress and inflammation or nutrient deficiencies you can make what we call an intermediate metabolite, which is reverse T3. And this is our effort to get tested, isn't it? It's like, so hard. It's so hard, but really it is hard. so important to know yeah. because you can actually have good levels of T3 or low normal levels yeah. of T3 and still be feeling tired. Why? So, you, why? You tell I'll, them. I'll tell you. <laughs> tell me why, Carissa. Why am I tired? Okay, just let me tell you. Just take a seat, darling, and we shall discuss this. <laughs> 
Essentially, if you have high circulating levels of reverse T3, it can bind to the T3 receptor sites. So you've got good circulating levels of T3 or low normal circulating levels of T3 and your T4 looks good. But if you're producing, for whatever reason, shunting off and making reverse T3 in the blood or at receptor sites where things actually biologically do their thing and give you your energy and make you feel good from a thyroid point of view, reverse T3 is competing with your normal T3 for those receptor sites. So you need to get, not get rid of T3, reverse T3, sorry, but you need to understand if that is playing mm. a part. Because if it is, why? Exactly. <laughs> so are you inflamed? Do you have some nutrient deficiencies like iron, iodine, zinc, mm. selenium, all of this stuff? Is your thyroid struggling, therefore making mm. more reverse T3? Are you a stressed out freak? Are you a stressed out freak? Is your adrenal, yeah, is your is your adrenal axis totally wired? Do you have thyroid antibodies, which is the next thing that is also very hard to get tested because if you have thyroid antibodies, you have what we call an autoimmune thyroid and that is a different kettle of fish again. And as we so, often see, you can do these tests if you're lucky enough to get the full panel and you may see that the antibodies are raised and everything else is fine, else which is yeah. just a... I'm probably just jumping ahead of Chris there, but the no. the only other thing I just wanted to say, just from a, uh, I guess again an analogy point of view, is I often say to clients to think about reverse T3 as like a handbrake, as far as like <laughs> literally, <laughs> so it's a protective. I think sometimes when we talk about these things, it's like that's really like mental. Why is the body doing that? It's, it makes your body is a, it's a self preservation mechanism. It's trying yeah. to slow things down. So as Chris was just highlighting, there's reasons. That was like why we're asking why is your body doing this and usually it'll be those other factors that the reverse t3 is being did i just say free the reverse t3, I don't know. No, <laughs> the reverse I, t3 I <laughs> is being pushed up because your body is trying to actually go into some form of self-preservation so we need mm. to figure out why that's happening yeah um, exactly but we do unfortunately see a lot of the time where there is a, a classic TSH that's been measured and it's fine and we're trying to dig deeper from that. And when we can dig deeper and get that information, often what we're seeing is that there's antibody issues or that when we finally get that information that there is some problems as far as mm. like um, you're just T3. So with... <laughs> the, the reason this is a, a really a sort of passionate topic for us is, and probably a lot of other practitioners is that we know how important it is to get a complete picture like the iron as far as doing a full iron studies. Like you, you can't make a judgment just on one thing. You need to see the full picture. But unfortunately yeah. with the way Medicare set up, um, and I do feel this at doc for them, like their hands are often tied. So yeah. unless they have a reason to test further, it means that they can get into trouble. But the problem is the way the system's set up is that, and it's so archaic, unless your TSH comes back high um, or low or out of range, yeah. then they'll test further, which is ludicrous because as we've just explained, your TSH can look fine. And quite often does look yeah. fine. Yeah, and it's these other areas. So you've got options. One is you be stubborn <laughs> and, <laughs> and argumentative <laughs> with your GP. You can ask to pay the difference. Yeah, so which is what I say to exactly. my clients. So it's going to cost you um, or you can do it through a functional pathology lab, which generally yeah. ends up being, I think, roughly around the same, yeah, like as far yeah, as like what you end up paying. Same. So I think 
particularly if you're if you have a the history i mean if you have a history a family history that's the stuff we're going to try and like drip into that referral letter and try and get the gp on our side but by drip you mean highlight involved <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly so we're going to try and get that for you but this is the sort of area where if you've got those underlying um yeah i i think sort of family history factors and suspicions this is the sort of area where it's worth spending the money on getting the information if you can't get it through your gp just through medicare don't you think I'm yeah, 100%. There, but <laughs> yeah, don't you think? No, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I don't worry. Just TS. Just test TSH. Fuck the fire. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I say that to a lot of my clients. Like, and I, I do know with that one with the with the GPs, like their hands are really tired, yeah. and you have to respect that yeah. space as well. Like, it's frustrating as it is like I know when a GP says no I'm not testing that it's not because they're yeah. being you know they're on their high horse it's literally because the, that one is a real one that's cracked down on yeah, from Medicare with hard. like physicians so, so hard. it needs re-evaluating it, it needs re-evaluating and it sucks but yeah like you can like Jess said there are functional I've got one of my clients I always forget who she uses um but she actually has a functional pathology lab where she just goes on orders her own test she I just tell her what to order ah, cool. she and then she pays for it online yep. And then she just takes the letter to the pathology lab and she gets the results herself. She doesn't even have to deal with a yeah, GP. Yeah, great. It's um, it's it's a functional online Australian yeah, lab, basically. So yeah. you just pay for what you want. Yeah. Yep. And she she's just like, look, honestly, by the time I pay ninety dollars to see a GP, exactly. goes in the waiting room, have the have the discussion with them about what I want, why I want it, and then probably get refused mm. some of it anyway, based on Medicare, you know, rules, which mm. she which we totally understand and respect. She's like, it's just easier for me to jump online with this lab. I'll yep. have to find out what the lab is. Um, just pay for myself go yep. get it done and give you the results yeah she's like it and she also knows that if it's anything because obviously this this is the thing too is we obviously are very well versed in reading bloods and we also know when we need to hand our clients over mm. or send them for further investigations so she knows that she doesn't need to see a gp for media to interpret her bloods and that if there is anything that comes back of yep. concern i will recognize that and send her off to a gastro or send her off to you know, and that's too where a bit of trust comes in. Like you, if you are seeing a functional medicine practitioner, like, you know, us at the JCN clinic, but you are seeing someone else and that's an avenue you want to go down, mm. you, you just need to make sure that the person you're dealing with actually understands general pathology because yeah. I think the concern is too, and I know I have seen this where I've had clients seeing, and again, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but just let's just say someone else in the preventative medicine space that doesn't understand how to interpret functional pathology, mm. they've had a look at their bloods and gone, oh, you actually need to be on this supplement. I've had a look at their bloods and gone, no, you don't. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's where too, like, you know, there's people even within our our area, like, you know, and our more like holistic health space that should not be giving advice on general pathology yeah. at all yeah. because they're not trained in it. Yeah. And I think that too, like, don't go to your, I don't, I'm not even going to say, it, but anyway, don't go to your like acupuncturist or something like that to get an interpretation yeah. of your blood pathology unless you know that they've done the training, they understand it because they're not trained to do exactly. so really. Exactly. I might, I hope that's right in saying that. Yeah. But, no, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's completely valid, completely. Hey, like, I just want yeah. to touch on, um, I know we didn't have it on our notes, but just very briefly, because the other one that often gets ran with as standard blood pathology is ELFT. So it's just looking at oh, yeah. your um, electrolyte and liver function test. So yeah. when that gets ordered, it's actually quite a lot of markers. Um, 
but generally what it looks at is your electrolytes. So whether they're sitting in balance, often they can be a bit skewed, particularly if Mm. you've done a fasting blood test. So that's something to always keep in mind. Um, It's going to look at your kidney function. Um, it's, It's definitely on the rarer side for us, I think, that we see like we sometimes we have we have issues in this area for clients, but I think probably um, I'm going to stereotype, but probably more dietitians might see more going on there because they work with more maybe end stage renal failure with mm. diabetes and and so forth. But we will be running our eyes over that as far as your kidney function, as far as filtration, or um, we're going to be looking at urea and those yeah. sorts of things. So there's there's that side of things, and the other big component of that is the liver. So liver, liver enzyme again really important as far as reference ranges so we want to be looking at that and seeing whether there is a tendency to be high in your range so we can tell that there is liver inflammation and liver inflammation like it's pretty serious like it's not something just to be kind of scoffed off I'm gonna get I'm gonna do a Carissa now and freak everyone out but if you've got (laughs) If you've got raised liver enzymes, like it's a sign that there's liver, like there's some form of inflammation and and starting to be some form of damage to those cells. Now, those cells Mm. are pretty amazing in regeneration, but still you don't want to just be like, ah, I've got raised liver enzymes. Like it's, it's serious. (laughs) And it's, it's often if they are high doctors. (laughs) I love how you laugh while you're saying (laughs) that. It's serious. (laughs) It's such a, it's my, it's a family trait. Damien's always just like, what is wrong with your family? Like when people fall over, we laugh. We just think it's Really um, I think my family's actually the same. Like, it, I don't know if, it, yeah, you're talking about things and we can just make any horrible situation <laughs> it's so funny. Bad. And it's just like, this is actually not okay, but it's clearly a coping mechanism. Oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, so we're going to look in the range. And if you're getting really high in a liver range, like that's something mm. that we're going to be really flagging as far as what's going yeah. on there. Where's that liver inflammation coming from? But also... Um, as you mentioned before, with some of these other markers, um, I think it was with the white blood cells, we want to look at a history too. So sometimes yeah. liver enzymes can be raised transiently because of viral infections or other yeah. forms of inflammation. So if we can see that you've had a history of a, a raised liver enzyme or two, then that's really important information for us. So yep. again, it's a, just another one I wanted to flag. Yeah. And I think too, like I always say to my clients, especially if younger clients come back with it because I think everyone just really thinks of raised liver enzymes as a bit of an end story scenario and it's definitely not but in saying that too there's definitely parameters where you're super concerned and then parameters where you're like we'll just keep an eye on this what do you mean end sorry by an end end case you mean death (laughs) (laughs) alcoholic liver (laughs) death (laughs) yeah what is so wrong with know, us today? I'm going to disprove, Carissa, because I, I can't even remember. I feel like I've told you before and maybe who knows. So years ago when I was um, coming down to Victoria, to Mornington Peninsula all the time to visit my sister-in-law and brother, when we all get together, we always hit up the wineries. So we're doing the winery thing every day. I and think you've told me this story. Oh, yeah. You're gonna love it. Um, we're doing the wine. Yes, so does it involve does it involve liver damage from drinking? <laughs> Let me get to it. Lots lots of wineries, but also um, we were doing like, eating out a lot. But lots of like really decadent cheese boards. Like Carly always lays it on, and so I was eating. I'm highly dairy intolerant, but at oh, that mate, time I was you like, even look at a cow. <laughs> So you imagine the blue cheeses, the red wine, like all of it. 
Anyway, Seven. four or five, I don't know how many days later, I wasn't feeling too well, but I went to bed and I had this horrible acute pain oh, in my liver, liver area, which obviously very much freaked me out at the time. Fast forward, got home, took myself off to the doctor, got some blood tests done, and I had a raised liver <laughs> which was very confronting. So suffice to say, um, I jumped in and did all of the work that I knew I needed to do. Um, yeah. And just to disprove, Carissa, I'm not dead. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> just in case you were wondering, Jess is very much alive. <laughs> I know what I meant was. <laughs> How come you've never told me that story? I don't know. I, I thought, thought I would have. I thought you were going to tell me the weird plant in the mole story. Like, you know, that you the weird plant that gets rid of sun cancer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. Anyway, um, no. <laughs> anyway, don't worry about that one, guys. You'll tell that another day. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, like when they're in their hundreds, yeah. you know, when you see like for alcoholics yes. and you're just like, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> end stage. Not like <laughs> I get really frustrated with people who drink heaps and then they get their liver enzymes done and it's fine. That really annoys oh, me. Just yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm Like trying your to dad's probably got fine liver enzymes. Actually, I don't think he does. Yeah. Actually, he might though. I definitely know his, tri his cholesterol, triglycerides, and he would hate if we were talking sorry, about this thing. <laughs> Fuck, he doesn't know what a podcast is. Sorry, Mr. Mason. Sorry, sorry Peter. <laughs> Um, we're using you as our drinking example. Um, <laughs> My dad um, drinks heaps and he never has raised liver enzymes. I don't, really I think dad's me. liver enzymes, yeah, I think dad's liver enzymes are actually fine. I have looked, I haven't looked at his bloods recently, but I remember, hmm. yeah, his cholesterol, cholesterol and trigs were his big one and, um, and yeah, ferritin is his big right, one. I know yeah, that. Yeah. So, but ferritin too, interestingly, very much raised in, um, you know, people that do drink frequently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because of that inflammation again. Inflammation, yeah. So I have to look at Dad's liver enzymes. I'll be keen to see because, yeah, he's definitely like a, uh, you know, I would say he definitely has his time off it as well. But I'm mm -hmm. going to say as a general rule, like he's a he's a six beers a night kind of guy. Yeah. Maybe maybe more, yeah. depending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> depending on if he gets socially excited with himself <laughs> <laughs> and his shed friends. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, let's start. Moving on to that, we can keep going on that one. We'll move on. We're just about done. Um, we've got homocysteine next, but you already sort of talked about that. I've already it? kind of so talked about that. Jump yeah, ahead. let's jump. Um, I talk about that all the time. Day, why don't you do your day 21 hormones and then <sighs> I'll do vitamin D? Done. And then we'll wrap it up yep. so in case everyone's having a snooze fest because we think this is excellent <laughs> and we love talking about our drinking adventures. <laughs> um, all right. So day 21 hormones, obviously, probably... The best thing to say is that what's the easiest way to say this? Okay. I like, obviously we've openly said that hormones can definitely not be the most accurate blood hormones. Sorry. Serum hormones can obviously not be the most accurate way to look at hormones. And quite often they can look normal in bloods. But then obviously when we do a Dutch test, we can actually get a true and more accurate representation mm. of what's going on with the hormones. However, Day 21 hormones, so day 21 of your cycle, day one when you start bleeding, day 21 is post that, so usually post ovulation of a regular period cycle, can still give you some information. And I definitely, I definitely use that to look for ovulation, like signs of ovulation. So if a day 21 hormone panel is run properly, where we look at 
um, FSH, LH, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, and DHEA. Mm -hmm. um, you can sometimes really pick up some really interesting things for people, not always, and hence why I love to layer a day 21 hormone panel with a Dutch test. But um, you, yeah, sometimes you you don't get much. You can just tell that someone's ovulated and everything looks good. You won't necessarily pick up PCOS or high androgens or high estrogen in it. But you can use it as a very useful tool to get to get some idea because sometimes some things will come back. But also, yeah, it's a really good one to kind of pick up ovulation. So if you're working in the fertility space or you're someone who is kind of a bit unsure, but you get a regular cycle and you're trying to fall pregnant and you want to know if you're ovulating, your day 21 progesterone through bloods is pretty accurate. Yeah all of the FSH and LH by the time you're looking at day 21 I'd have to look at that again but you can usually see that someone has ovulated by looking at those three hormones mm -hmm. you kind of don't need estrogen in there it's, it's good to have it in there but the LH um, progesterone and FSH can be some really good markers to look at day 21 through serum mm -hmm. through bloods um, but the GP does need to run the full panel. Like just doing, just doing progesterone without the other hormones sometimes is not good enough. Like it can be like just progesterone on its own. But again, to get a good snapshot, you want to run that full hormone panel, mm -hmm. which sometimes is frustrating because I've, you know, had GPs go, I oh, will just do we'll just do your androgens to test for PCOS. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, we want to know if this person's got PCOS, but we also want to know if they're ovulating with PCOS, you yeah. know, because they're two different scenarios in terms of treatment. Um, and it is necessary that you do them on day 21 if you can. So, mm. you know, five to five to seven days post ovulation if you know that you're ovulating. So if you're trying to get your hormones tested through your GP and they just like, just go and do them whenever, don't do them whenever. Like try and... Yeah gauge when you've ovulated and do them a ballpark a week after ovulation yeah not just not just kind of in your follicular in your follicular phase or hickledy pickledy because it's just going to come back and you may be like oh I'm, I'm not ovulating or this and that and it's like well when did you do this in your cycle yeah. and sometimes people are like oh, I did it on day five well you haven't ovulated on day five yeah. so of course it looks you know so there's just no, we hope yeah not. hormone <laughs> yeah well you hope not <laughs> short cycle <laughs> Um, yeah, so you can pick, you can pick up, it's not that, um, you know, blood hormones are useless by any means. They definitely, you can pull some good information mm. out of them, but they need to be done as a panel and they need to be done at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's probably my take home with those. Yeah. No, fantastic. 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 Vitamin D, our <laughs> last one. I mean, look, it just, I mean, it, there's so much that it does in the body again, um, but the thing with vitamin D is that it, it kind of had its limelight where, the, the again, from a Medicare point of view and with GPs, it was like a free-for-all for a while. It was really easy to get and it wasn't a problem. Mm. But then there was some changes that happened with Medicare and it's been tightly regulated, which is yeah. really, really frustrating. So it it's sucks. not as easy to get now. Unfortunately, it's common that it's low. Um, generally with blood work um, and standard pathology, they're looking at it being over 50. And unfortunately, again, if it is just scraping the barrel, it's often not really looked at. Um, some, Although sometimes you look at the blood reference ranges and they've got their little markers as far as like, you know, this is suboptimal, this is optimal. So depending again on who's looking at that, like they might give it a little bit more attention. But 
we see a lot of it on that low end and probably on the flip side where it is actually out of range and low. Um, yeah, yeah. It's very, very common that vitamin D is low. And, you know, it's that classic irony of like, yes, we live in Australia, but, um, you know, there's this. Slip, slop, slap. Yep, <laughs> good old slip, slop, slap, let alone we've all been locked inside through COVID. There's so many yeah. reasons why it's low. And it's, it's one that, um, again, I personally think that is worthwhile potentially asking if you can just pay the difference on. Yeah, um, agreed. Vitamin D is, I know Krista loves it because it has so much to do um, from a hormone point of view and it's often thought of functioning like a hormone. It's, it has so many roles in the body. It's not just about your bone function. Obviously, it plays a really important role there in what's going on with healthy healthy bones. But we need to look at it for a plethora of reasons. And the, the problem is, um, again, that more often than not, it's going to be sitting on that low side. And um, I think, you know, to flag good old Emma again, um, I know I've seen vitamin D low with clients with really poor mental health yeah. conditions, particularly with anxiety and depression. And I've seen some really profound changes in clients just by getting their vitamin D up. There's it's been so a much research for that. Yeah. There's so much research for vitamin T, D and, and like, you know, mental health. Like it's yeah. just next level. Like there's, so even that alone, I don't understand why Medicare has changed the guidelines yeah. on the testing for it. Because when we, un- like, yeah, like I think of it functioning like a hormone, but even from a neurotransmitter yeah. point of view, like that ho- hormone, like... We've got to, again, it just comes back to us to stop segregating parts of the body, like, yeah. uh, you know, into like, you know, hormones and the nervous system and the cardiovascular yeah. system, like everything interacts with everything else. Like mm. if you don't have a good functioning, you know, um, HPA axis and reproductive hormone space, your neurochemicals are going to function differently. Mm. So you're, you're going to be more susceptible to any sort of emotional, you know, emotional space that might not do what it needs to do. Like that's probably not wording it well, but everyone knows what I mean. <laughs> but it's just this whole thing too. Yeah, like, you know, doctors just go vitamin D, sunshine. I've got to say doctors, that's a horrible thing. Like that's, you know, really just saying they all don't understand it because a lot of them are really starting to understand it. Vitamin D is not one that I have any issues getting tested, I have to say. like Really? I, yeah, well, 100% some, can yeah, say. Unfortunately, oh, really? I've run into problems. Not as much as thyroid. <laughs> yeah, Definitely not yeah, as much yeah. as thyroid. Thyroid takes a cake. Yeah. Homocysteine, no, I have to say, I've run into problems with homocysteine. Yeah, heaps, yep. heaps. But I have to say vitamin D, I feel like I touch wood, have not had any mm. issues getting that tested. All of the GPs that my clients deal with are usually like, yep, no worries, they'll run it. The interesting thing is that I think is probably of note is the parameters around vitamin D supplementation seem to be, I think, need to be better understood. Because if you're in a suboptimal range mm. or a deficiency stage, so on um, pathology, it's usually below 55 or 50, again, depending, depending on the path lab that we're dealing with. Quite often people are sitting around that 55, 45 to 55, maybe 60 marks. Yeah. So you are vitamin D deficient as far as we're concerned. Taking one vitamin D tablet a day is not going to get you Mm. up to where you need to be. You need to be taking, if you're in that deficiency slash just about to drop out stage, you need to be on probably three to 5,000 IUs Mm. of vitamin D. So if that's drops, it's like, you know, five vitamin D drops. If that's tablets, that's three Mm. to five tablets a day. They need to be taken with food. It's a fat soluble nutrient, not on an empty stomach. um, And that you need to get those levels up. Mm. Going for a walk in the sunshine 20 minutes a day is not going to get you up where you need to be because there's so many 
there's so many um, steps in the activation of vitamin D for it to function. So basically from the sun hitting your skin to the receptors in the skin to it transporting through and then becoming an active, you know, an active uh, vitamin that can be utilized by the body. The process for that to happen, there's so many genetic SNPs involved in that or genetic um enzymes involved in that that have snips on them these days and so that's why a lot of people even though we are slip slop slapping and we're doing the things a lot of us are vitamin d deficient because we just don't convert vitamin d through the way we need to Mm -hmm. so there's a yeah i've learned a lot about vitamin d just from a genetic point of view and it really blows my mind that there's so many reasons why a lot Mm. of us even if we are out in the sun and going for our walk like i don't put sunscreen on my arms my legs and i'm out in the sun pretty much every day and i'm a vitamin d deficient yeah interesting so you haven't had genetic testing done for yourself have you not the full panels, yeah, no. Yeah. Not, but I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to do it, which we'll get into that space <laughs> <laughs> once I start to get on that bandwagon. But, but yeah, like vitamin D learning about that, I was like, no yeah, wonder we're all vitamin D deficient. So there's like five steps in the activation mm, of it. Yeah, yeah, true. And, and all of these enzymes that are involved, if you've got a snip on even two to three of them, you are not going to yeah. really get the vitamin D you need from the sun yeah. in, that, in that limited sun exposure morning and afternoon that we give ourselves because mm. we're all trying to stay away from mainstream middle of the day sun yeah. exposure so you make yeah. a good point there as far as supplementation too which i think references back to some other areas we've talked about you know if you're if you're hugely deficient you know say to go back to say iron or b12 it's not mm. just a matter of like just um you know eat eat red meat two times a week and you'll be fine like you, you yeah. have to be looking at some of these markers that are very deficient and how they can be lifted quickly and effectively um i know some gps with vitamin d use a really high, high dose, dose every like six, twenty thousand i yeah i think it's like week. roughly every six days or a week um yeah. which is you know interesting um as far as like getting those ranges up but yeah so important what you just said about like just being really low and just buying like your 1000 iu vitamin d or your mm. bloody um Ostolin, is it Ostolin? Ostolin, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, oh I'm low in vitamin D, but I'm just taking my once a day Ostolin, which is, yeah. I think that's even as low as like 500. I think you? it depends. Depending I think it's got a thousand, but I think it depends. Yeah, yeah. there's some that. But it's not going to cut it. No. <laughs> now, it's not going to cut it to get you out of that deficiency. The other thing, just before we finish up, that you mentioned, I think is important looking at blood pathology is, in, is about the relationship still between everything as you said about when we look at the body we're looking at how the hormones are being affected by what's going on with the adrenals and how mental health's being affected by what's going on in the gut like we're always digging for those core drivers um and looking at blood work is the same so yes we're looking at all of them and what's going on and what might need support but we're going to be looking at your bloods as far as like what's driving this, what's related yep. to what, as we've highlighted a few things as we've gone through. Like why is that iron low because there's inflammatory markers over here or what's going on here as far as thyroid and over here with vitamin D and X, Y, Z. There's there's always going to be some synergy in your blood work and some knock-on effects. Yep. So that's the sorts of things that are good functional clinical nutritionist should be looking at with you or whoever you're looking at your blood work with. Um, yeah. So I think, I think the only other point before we finish up would be fun, like why we may then look at functional testing further. Um, mm. 
And really, I guess we've kind of highlighted that. It's just when with that blood work, and you, you sort of mentioned the, the Dutch there, which was a really good example, like the standard pathology can be like opening the window or the door to something that's going on at a deeper level. So it can be a way... We want to blow the walls off the whole damn house. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> So we, we want to dig deeper as always and get to that underlying core. And if it's not there in standard pathology, then we're going to dive deep with functional testing. But the standard pathology can be a really good way to get an idea, kind of like an oat organic acid test. So it's like an over, yeah. which is a functional test, but sometimes it can be a really good way of pushing you in a Segway. certain direction. Yeah. So I think that's pretty much it. Is there anything yeah. you want to add? No, I think... I think we've covered it all. Yeah. So I think, the, yeah, I don't, yeah, I think we've done well. I think we've covered everything we wanted to cover. Yeah. I think if you do, I think the, probably the take home too, and I really encourage a lot of my clients is there are a lot of great GPs out there and there are a yeah. lot of good GPs that are on board with what the holistic health space and the preventative health space and the functional health space is space is trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you've got a good GP, stick with them. Yes. Um, and if you haven't got one or you've had the, an experience where you've walked into a GP where you're trying to take your health into your own hands to a degree, but you're trying to work, you know, in a preventative space to, you know, set yourself up for the future, don't let anyone make you feel like shit for doing that. Mm. <laughs> I think is my biggest take home. Like there's so many doctors out there um, and there's a lot of new doctors coming through that are very aware of the role that nutrition and supplements can play um, and Mm. understanding the biochemistry and the synergy of the human body. And find yourself one of those would be my suggestion. Like don't, don't take, not saying don't take no for an answer. Like obviously they GPs have to do what they have to do with under the guidelines of Medicare. And we totally respect that, but find someone who wants to work with you, not against you and work with your other practitioners. If you see a naturopath, if you've got a clinical nutritionist, if you've got, you know, a great acupuncturist, if you've got, you know, a great um, physiotherapist, Get your team and they want get them to work with you. You also need a general practitioner or a physician in that space. We all do. Mm. But find one that, you know, I think is is down with what you need to do. Yeah. Or at least, you know, open to it. Yeah. So No, really, really important. If you do know some really amazing GPs, feel welcome to let us know. Like just DM us because we're always looking yep. for really yeah. amazing GPs to refer to and in different states as well. It doesn't have to be Brisbane. So yeah, yeah. we've got some goodies. We've got some goodies in Brisbane already, yep. but we we obviously know that their clinics are super busy. Yep. <laughs> so if there's more, let us yeah. know. If you, yeah, if you, I'm always looking if you for ha- more. If you have a great, um, you know, a great experience at a medical practice, just talk about it on social media yep. and tag us. We'll just share it. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. So we're so for you guys having a team, and that really does involve having a good G- mm. a good GP on your side mm-hmm. because you you do need them a hundred percent throughout your life in your health space. Yeah, so. for sure. That's my last little, last little, last little Well bit. said. Well Thanks, said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, thank you, as always, for joining us. Um, if you've got any feedback, you can just let us know through our socials. Um, yep. And as always, um, we love it when you share these episodes. So please do. Uh, share away. Yeah. And uh, leave any reviews you like on the iTunes area, Spotify, wherever you're listening, because we appreciate that too. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll chat to you again soon. Cool. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye.